So sometimes I would pray for a miracle that God, please help me. When I wake up tomorrow, I should wake up black. <laughs> I remember praying that prayer so many times. But when I came to understand the nature of my condition, I never you know, prayed for that ever again because I realized that it's normal. You know, it's just genetic. This is the comb. Ye ni the comb. The comb, no. Ni the comb. The comb. Hi and welcome to The Comb, a BBC World Service original podcast. I'm Kim Chakaneta, and each week I comb through the continent for stories that matter to you. And if you have a story that you'd like us to look into, our email is thecomb at bbc.com. This week I'm starting east and then heading south to explore the very different experiences of two young women living with albinism in Tanzania and South Africa, Perpetua Senkoro and Annelien Matiba. Most people I've met, I think they think we're more fragile than we look, that I can't do heavy jobs, I can't, I can't go have a haircut, maybe the scissors will tear my skin, you know? They think that we're these fragile, egg-like beings that are, are supposed to be handled with extreme care, that there are things that we cannot do that normal people, normal according to them, can do. Perpetua Senkoro is listing some of the things people misunderstand about albinism. She's 28 and based in Dar es Salaam. And the idea of what is or isn't normal is one she's grappled with all her life. She tells me about something that happened after she'd just given birth to her first daughter. Here, when you, when you have given birth, your aunties and you know, other relatives come to see you. And one particular auntie, who's a nurse, by the way, came into the hospital room and went straight to the baby's cot and just looked at the baby and she was like, oh, how nice, you gave birth to a normal one. I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, in my head, I was like asking myself, so what were you expecting? So that's normal? So I'm abnormal? I don't know. Comments like that have followed Perpetua from as far back as kindergarten, when she first realised she was different. Only me and my younger brother had albinism. So the whole school, <laughs> they're black, and only me and my brother um, are of a you know, Caucasian skin tone. I guess that was when I realised that different. During the time when we were very, very young, you know, children are accepting. They don't, you know, shun each other. So it was during my walks from school to home and home to school, the people I would meet with along the way, I guess those are the ones who, you know, alerted me like, you're different because, you know, the name calling and all that. What would they be saying to you? For people with albinism here, they have a Swahili word. They call us zero zero. What does that mean? Something white. Something white. Something white. So it's like, but for us who are the people being called that name, it it feels derogatory. You know, it feels it feels bad because it's like it's like an insult in a way. (laughs) 
I have been hearing people calling me that name, me and my, my siblings, since I was young. When Perpetuate thinks about the name calling, there's one particular incident that happened when she was about six years old that has stuck with her decades later. We were coming from school, heading home, and then along the way we came across a group of kids playing football, street football. So as we walk um, through the field where they were playing, suddenly they all stopped and they started looking at us and calling us names. And then they started chasing us. So me and my brother are running, are running home and this group of kids are behind us screaming, zero, zero, eight guavas. There are some guavas here which are white. Like if you peel them, they're white. So the group of kids screaming that, and me and my brother running home, that was horrific. And it's something that I've never forgotten ever since because it felt, I felt scared. We've never talked about it with my brother, never, ever. But I know that he too must have felt terrified. Within the school gates, there were different challenges. You know, I'm visually impaired. The albinism comes with visual impairment, so I couldn't see well on the blackboard. So if the teacher wrote notes on the blackboard, I would have to tilt my head a bit Mm -hmm. to get focus. Mm -hmm. Now, as I tilt my head, I would see other kids do the same, imitate me. And that would really anger me because why <laughs> like why should they do that they know that i'm suffering with this and they're doing that mm. so that must have mm. had a huge impact on how you learned or how you participated in school yes it did it did very much i remember in some subjects i wouldn't have notes on my on in my exercise book because what would usually happen was the teacher would come she would write all the notes for particular subjects on the blackboard and we we were supposed to jot them down in our exercise books so that we go and read them later so i wouldn't see what was written on the on the, on the blackboard so i didn't have anything taken down <laughs> the teacher would collect all our exercise books and she would go mark them and check if we had jotted down the notes. And I remember one day I collected mine and it had nothing. (laughs) So she wrote, see me, (laughs) which I didn't go. But that was the usual for me. I couldn't see what was written on the board. Perpetua, why didn't you go to her and explain what was happening? Somehow I couldn't. I I don't know why. I I couldn't. I don't know why. I I just couldn't. And would you tell your parents about your experiences? No, I, I, I couldn't. <laughs> I don't remember ever doing that. Why not? You know, in African families, it rarely occurs in a family for kids to be free to talk about personal issues with their parents. It's, it's rare. There are families which would do that. But as for my family and many others, it's normal for kids not to, you know, talk about personal things with their parents. And that was the case for me. Would you talk to your brother, who also has albinism? Did you discuss it with him? When I was young, really. Maybe when we were, like, older, sometimes we would, Mm. but not as often. Mm. So I would hold that with me, carrying it by myself for years and years. And so Perpetua said nothing. Not to her teachers or to her parents or even to her brother who was probably going through similar struggles. 
And throughout her childhood, there was a single question that she asked herself over and over. Why am I this way? Why do I look like the way I do? My, my mother doesn't have albinism. My father doesn't have albinism. How do I have albinism? Like, I, 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 I had questions. What Perpetua didn't know at the time was the science behind her inherited condition. Now, the two types of albinism, oculocutaneous albinism, known as OCA, and that affects the skin, hair and eyes, and ocular albinism, which is a rarer type, and that mainly affects the eyes, and it's known as OA. In all types of OCA and some types of OA, albinism is passed on by what's known as an autosomal recessive inheritance pattern. And what that means is that a child has to get two copies of the gene that causes albinism, one from each parent to have the gene. If both parents carry the gene, there are one in four chances their child will have albinism and a one in two chance their child will be a carrier. Now, a carrier doesn't have albinism, but can pass on the gene. So even though Perpetua's parents didn't appear to have albinism, they were carriers, which is why her and her brother both have it. Now, some types of OA are passed on in an X-linked inheritance pattern, and this pattern affects boys and girls differently. So girls who get the albinism gene become carriers, while boys who will get it will have albinism. This genetic mutation affects the production of melanin, the pigment that colours your skin, your eyes and hair. The reduced amount of melanin can cause the skin to be really vulnerable to the sun. It also causes eye problems, poor eyesight or extra sensitivity to light. And this explains Perpetua in the classroom struggling to see the board and relying on some of the kinder students to help her out. So occasionally I'd have one or two people who would hang out with me. I had one particular friend who hung out with me for some time and I remember being happy in, in her company because other people wouldn't hang out with me. So her company gave me, you know, strength, <laughs> to say the least. And then she got tired because, you know, I would ask her to read for me sometimes in class and then another one offered to read for me. So having a support system, even a, a single friend, at least that, that made me move forward. Did things get better in high school? Things got better. Things got better. Because when I went to high school, there wasn't so much, you know, notes being written on the board anymore. <laughs> Teachers were printing notes, <laughs> most of them. And there was a library at the high school. <laughs> Plus, I had more friends. I'm going to come back to Perpetua's story. But for now, I want you to meet Annaline Matiba, who also has albinism. Get on my black. Get on my black. Get on my black. She lives in Pretoria, South Africa, with her family and her dogs, Blackie and Princess, who you can probably hear. And growing up, Annaline's childhood was very different from Perpetua's. For starters, Annaline is at her happiest in the spotlight on the stage, on the runway, or in her stride on the street, giving a tour of her neighbourhood. Um, yeah, this is the street that I live in. And right now, we're going to buy spatlo, which is what I love to eat. Well, spatlo, a.k.a. kota, it originally started here in Pretoria. So you got Spatlo, in case you were wondering, is a quarter loaf of bread hollowed out and filled with all sorts of artery lining trimmings like cold cuts, eggs, chips, cheese, lettuce. 
Eneline lives here with her parents. She's the youngest. And she says they always took a hands-on, no-nonsense approach when it came to their daughter. Like this one day, some guy was harassing Eneline on the road outside the house. I went to tell my father. My father got upset and he whipped out a sword. A sword? A sword. It, it was in the, in the tool shed behind the house. And he went looking for the boy. But we couldn't find him. We went down the street asking. They're like, no, he drove away. God knows what my father was going to do to him if he would have found him. Annalyn's mother was also fiercely protective of her. And she wasn't someone you wanted to mess with. My mom is a superwoman. She made sure that I was comfortable at school. She made sure that I was happy. Every time she had a problem with a teacher at school, she wouldn't go to the principal's office. She would go directly to the teacher to tell them off or to tell them I didn't like what you did to my child because you know that she has albinism and you must accommodate her. Because I remember they told my mom, send her to her special school. And my mom refused. My mom said, I'm not taking her anywhere because she's staying here. And this is the school that's going to accommodate her. And they did. They knew my mom very well. And when Annaline saw this, the way her parents reacted when anyone made her life difficult, it shaped how she interacted with the world too. She says if anyone ever tried to make her feel less than... Well, I would shout for everyone to see that I'm proud of who I am, telling them to leave me alone. Yeah, I would always cause a scene. Eleline says she's mellowed with age. She no longer lashes out. And so now, for example, when someone uses the word albino, she'll patiently explain why people with albinism prefer not to use that term. The term albino is dehumanising because I'm living with albinism. I'm not my condition. It's the person first. My parents would tell me every day that I'm beautiful, you are beautiful. Walk with your head held up high. It wasn't that Annalene's life was a complete breeze, but it helps to have people fighting her corner. So at school, when she was struggling to see the blackboard, her mother marched in and told the teachers to put her in the front row. And that was that. Socially, though, there were some things that were harder to fix. In high school... My own black people had a problem with me because that's what they said. They said, I'm pretending to be white. And that time I'm, I'm even wearing my natural hair because I'm in school. I'm, I'm, I'm not even wearing a weave. In my language, they would say, oh, we get alohoa, as if like I'm pretending to be white. I, I think that I'm better than everyone. Oh, this albino chick, she thinks she's better. Did you get that a lot from, from, from other black people? Yeah, a lot. Um... So I switched from black friends and, and went to white friends because the black friends always had a problem. White friends didn't have a problem. They hardly questioned. They accepted me for who I am. Yes, they knew that I have albinism. Was it that they just didn't understand the condition and they, they thought you were white? Like, what, what, was, what do you now, with hindsight, understand about how they treated you? They understood the condition, They just did not want to accept me for who I am because they had a problem with the way that I carried myself, you know, because if your own black race does not accept you for who you are, there's nothing you can do about it. Even though Annaline was met with hostility by certain kids at school, it didn't stop her from being herself. I remember whenever we would wear CVs at school. CVs meaning ordinary clothes. I would put on heels, put on huge earrings. You know, just to be seen at school, to set a trend, to set a fashion trend. You know, I would always have lipstick on. I made sure that I looked sexy in my heels. And it always brought out different comments. 
It also didn't stop her from entering spaces that weren't traditionally welcoming to people with albinism. I was crowned beauty queen in my hometown. I did well. Annaline, what was it like in terms of dating? I had my fair share of heartbreaks, you know, when it comes to dating. I don't think it was the fact that I'm living with albinism. But all I can say that boys are also curious. Sometimes boys also date you for the wrong reasons, you know. Sometimes boys want to tick off their bucket lists, you know. Why do you say that, Annaline? Like, what experience did you have that makes you say that? Because you look different. You know how boys are. They spread rumours and they... What can I say? They're like, oh, try to date her and see what kind of a person she is. Or some of them would say, oh, no, I've never dated an albino before. I'd like to see what it's like. And so right now, are you are you dating? Or are you single, if you don't mind me asking? I'm single! Yeah, <laughs> I'm single and proud of it. When Annalene is not watching her favourite Nollywood films, her focus is on an initiative called Proud Albinism, which is all about celebrating albinism, putting people in front of the camera, teaching them to be comfortable in their skin. I want to see myself in Hollywood. I want to walk the runways of different worlds, you know. I want to be an actress. I want to perform in Broadway. At the centre of it all is a desire to be fully seen. She remembers the first time she ever saw a model of albinism and what that meant to her. It felt good. Um, the first working model with albinism in South Africa, it was Refula Mutisale. I remember walking down the mall and I saw this huge picture of a person and, it, and it's written the first working model with albinism in South Africa. And I just stood there and I stared at the picture. I'm like, yeah, this is the beginning. What would you say it's like living with albinism in South Africa overall? Is South Africa a generally more progressive country in terms of its attitudes towards albinism? South Africa is a very good country towards people with albinism because people with albinism in South Africa, they're spoiled for choice, you know. There's disability grants. Uh, the government also offers sunscreens in some parts of areas. Uh, recently it's tempting to see attitudes to albinism in Tanzania and South Africa as being starkly different. But the truth is, South Africa also has its problems. People are also attacked. But it happens much less frequently. And Annalene says when it does, the police take robust action. Like when the grave of a young man with albinism who had died of skin cancer was dug up to remove his bones recently. The government took action to look for the criminals and they did a huge tombstone unveiling and they did a huge awareness about albinism, that there's nothing magical about us. We are only human. Our government is taking action. It's clear that attitudes to albinism vary across the continent, but Tanzania remains one of the most hostile places to live if you have albinism. So let's go back to Perpetua again. And what she's going to say next, some of you may find upsetting. There were so many reports of people like me being attacked. A number of reports were about people having their limbs hacked off. Mm -hmm. There were people who were killed, a few reports about rape. There are other reports where graves of deceased people with albinism were exhumed and bones stolen. We, we feared for our lives. We still fear for our lives because all these issues happened because of witchcraft beliefs. 
I think the main the main suspicion is that people with albinism are supernatural beings in two ways. One is that their body parts bring good luck when used in witchcraft charms. And at the same time, while people believe that our body parts bring good luck, at the same time, they also believe if we are born into a family, then that family would be cursed. So it's a two-way belief system about people with albinism that you know, goes up to the point that they believe that we are supernatural. And that is the source of all the, you know, I think it's it's the source of all the problems that we've been facing. The UN estimates that between 2000 and 2016, 75 people with albinism were killed in Tanzania. And it wasn't just in Tanzania these attacks were happening. They were happening in Malawi, Burundi and Mozambique as well. Perpetua says being in the city didn't make her any safer. I remember this one day I was preparing myself to go to school and then on the radio there was a reported attempted kidnapping and the place that that happened was near my home. So you can imagine how that felt and I still had to walk to school. I still have that fear. And it's a fear shared by many considering that Tanzania has one of the highest rates of albinism in the world. It occurs in one in every 1,400 people in Tanzania. That's according to the Albinism Advocacy Organization under the same sun. It's one out of every 17,000 worldwide. It's not clear why it's so high in Tanzania. The government has tried to take measures to stop the attacks. In 2015, they banned witch doctors and they also created special boarding schools to ensure the physical safety of children with albinism. But for Perpetua, as both a child and an adult, it's meant a life constantly on guard. How did that fear manifests itself in terms of how how you went about your daily life sometimes i would be coming from the office going home because i use public transport and then i'd hear maybe a car coming from behind or if i come across a stranger along the way i would be alert and a lot of what ifs would come into my mind and i would be on a prepared mode like if if he if he tax me or anything, I'd have to run. So I have those thoughts each time I'm walking from work, heading home, and everyone for me is suspicious. I never accept lifts. I never, you know, talk to strangers and all that. And sometimes I'd be in my house and I would wake up in the middle of the night and if I hear any sound outside, suddenly those thoughts would come back. It's something that I guess has never gone away, I guess. A couple of years ago, though, something happened that changed things for Perpetua. She went to the offices of an albinism charity called Under the Same Sun. And when she walked in, well, everything shifted. I walk into the office and I see the receptionist has albinism. And she looks so nice. (laughs) And I look at other staff members, not all of them, but most, had albinism. And they looked so nice. And I'm like, okay... Someone can be like me and look so nice. They looked so well-groomed. The girl had makeup on. I mean, she looked so cute, you know? <laughs> and I was like, okay, so someone can look like me and still be cute. <laughs> it, it is possible. And then I remember bef- before that, I used to feel embarrassed when sometimes I'd go into a bus and I'd meet someone else with albinism and I never wanted to be with someone who looked like me in public. Because I was like, this is double attention. By myself, people look at me, but if it's the two of us, people 
the attention increases and I hated attention. But for the first time when I went into that office, there were so many of them and we were so comfortable with each other. And slowly that feeling of hating myself just faded. Being able to travel has also helped in her journey of self-acceptance, like the time Perpetua spent in Canada. I never had anybody look at me weird. And I remember this one day I was going to the grocery store. And then along the way, I met a group of kids. And then as I walked past them, for the first time, nobody looked at me. It was like I was invisible. I was passing by invisible, something which would never happen when I'm here. I loved it. Even the cold? Well, not the cold, but (laughs) everything else. (laughs) Perpetua, when you look at where your life is now, you know, you're married with two kids, you know, a career. How do you feel when you look at where you are now? I like where I am. I feel more confident with myself right now. I feel unbothered by how I look. Now, if somebody calls me names, I don't take it personally as I usually would. Now I have access to gadgets that I, I, I had no access to in the past. I have a laptop, I'm, I can magnify my font. So I am in a position to deal with my condition in the best way that I ever could. I'm not bothered at all by it. I'm confident in myself. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please, please recommend us to a friend or two. There are some great episodes coming up, including a two-parter, which the team is very excited about. Next week, a story coming out of Senegal. This episode was produced by me, Kim Chakaneta, and Mary Goodhart, who also did the sound design. Piers Lynch is our editor, and Danny Cox is our studio manager. A special thanks to Ike Eponowoso for her help with this episode.